Welcome to Resilient Forward, a podcast created by Bagay Group to educate the public and promote solutions to Florida's most challenging environmental issues. I'm your host, Irela Bagay. I've been a longtime advocate of the environment and the economy. I invite you to join me as we showcase resilient solutions, feature innovative strategies, products, and services from prominent members of the business community, including industry leaders, advocates, and elected officials all engaged in developing and implementing resilient solutions in their community. In partnership with the Canadian Consulate in Miami, we are pleased to present a two-part podcast featuring a Q&A with Canada's Climate Ambassador, Patricia Fuller, on her recent visit to Miami where she joined members of the Organization of Women in International Trade, the Coral Gables Chamber of Commerce, and the Canadian Florida Chamber of Commerce. Our second podcast will feature Dr. Blair Feltmate, head of the INTAC Center on Climate Adaptation at the University of Waterloo, where he is an associate professor. The INTAC Center is an incubator for research and knowledge mobilization with an aim to limit the negative impacts associated with climate change and extreme weather events in Canada. So I think we're going to go ahead and get started. Thank you all for being here, and it is truly an honor to have you here with us today, Ambassador Fuller. It's a personal honor for me, too, uh, to be your moderator and to start this lovely conversation this morning, the morning after. <laughs> um, but but um, I'll go ahead and, and get right into it. <coughs> Canada having a, a climate ambassador is quite progressive. But tell us a little bit about how you got into this field, the environment, the economy, how they go hand in hand clearly, and um, what your role is in, in locally in Canada and outside of internationally. We have one mic. Okay, well first, what a pleasure to be here in, in Coral Gables. And uh, in fact, my long history in Latin America has a Coral Gables connection because my father was a banker and his bank had its regional headquarters for Latin America and the Caribbean here in, in Coral Gables. So he was uh, always speaking about Coral Gables through my childhood. So very, very especially nice to, to be here. Uh, so my role as um, ambassador for climate change is to engage with partners globally that are that are committed to climate action, and Canada is is uh, really committed to global leadership on, on climate change. As we know that this is a defining issue of our time. We are, uh, as we say, the uh, uh, the first generation to feel the effects of climate change, and the last generation to have a chance to do something about it. So uh, we're working globally with partners around the world through the Paris Agreement and through other alliances to seek to accelerate action on climate change. And by action on climate change, I mean both the actions we need to take to reduce emissions as well as uh, the actions we need to take to adapt to climate change. 
another element of my role that's, that's very important to me is the promotion of Canadian companies that are offering climate solutions. And in fact, that's what brings me to, to Miami, the, the uh, Caribbean Renewable Energies Forum, which is taking place over the next three days, where I'm very honored to be leading a delegation of almost 30 Canadian companies that are offering uh, all sorts of uh, solutions that I think uh, are important for the Caribbean, of course, but also interesting to, to uh, Florida partners. So give us some examples about um, some of these companies and what solutions are they proffering here? And, and what can us down here in South Florida, being that we're pretty progressive, we have four counties that have been working together for the past 10 years with the Southeast Regional Climate Compact, and we now have a plan and we need to execute. And we would love to collaborate with Canada and use some of these solutions and innovative approaches to adaptation and um, climate resilience. There's, a, of course, a whole range, but let me start with uh, the electricity sector, where Canada, for uh, uh, being a uh, hydroelectric uh, power, shall we say, uh, uh, has uh, a lot of expertise in, in grids and electricity transmission. And now, the challenge is really about how do we integrate renewables more effectively into grids. So, in the Caribbean, huge interest in microgrids. Uh, and uh, storage, of course, another area where there's Canadian companies with, with expertise. If we can solve the storage problem, then we're a, a, a lot of the way there in terms of, of having renewables take an, uh, a, a leap forward in terms of the amount of, of uh, uh, electricity they can provide globally. Um, another area is water treatment. Uh, and this, you know, it links to our, our long history as a, a, uh, a leader in the mining area. So mining companies in Canada have had to develop uh, all kinds of technologies for water treatment, water reclamation. Uh, so there are a whole number of uh, uh, startups and entrepreneurs doing some very interesting things around, around water treatment. Energy efficiency. I, I, mean, I could keep going, but uh, uh, that's another area where we have companies on this on this uh, delegation that uh, are in the area of building automation, uh, energy efficiency solutions. Uh, certainly, you know, the first fuel is uh, energy efficiency. So, so that's another another area. Well, thank you for that. And you know, the water energy nexus is something that we definitely have engaged in here and. Um, the chamber at the Greater Miami Chamber as well, and I know that we're looking at solutions here in our city, beautiful Coral Gables, um, building a, a mini microgrid as part of the, the mayor's uh, Bloomberg Mayor's Challenge. So we're very excited, and hopefully we'll win. <laughs> but moving more on to the international stage, um, you mentioned the Paris Agreement, and sadly, um, at the national level, at the federal level, we've we've decided to move out of it. Um, however, there is a lot of local um, uh, participation from, from cities and counties across the nation. Um, but how do you work with, at the federal level, at the national level, how do you work with a partner like the United States who just decided to just leave Paris? Well, you know, it's interesting. I was named to this position in June, and uh, I have been to the States uh, at least three times in that, in that short period. My first trip uh, abroad was uh, was to the United States, uh, to Washington, uh, and uh, to Boston recently for a trade mission as well, and now here. Uh, so we 
find that there are all sorts of partners who want to work with us, uh, and uh, that's both in the nature of state governments, city governments. Uh, one of the things I was engaging on is uh, the Powering Past Coal Alliance, which is something that Canada is leading with the United Kingdom as an effort to kind of like a mutual support group to uh, engage countries that are seeking to transition uh, from coal. Uh, the goal is by 2030 in Canada to transition off uh, coal. So that, that alliance brings in states in the United States. There's a number of state governments that are members, cities as well. Uh, and uh, so that's just one example of the ways that we can collaborate. But, but certainly I think in the clean technology, entrepreneurship area, there is so much going on. It's, it's, it's very exciting. The United States has always been a huge source of entrepreneurship, so no surprise there. Lots of linkages with, uh, with Canada in that way. And speaking of, well, entrepreneurship more on the financing side of things, um, you are working on carbon pricing, putting a price on carbon, which is something that has come up at the federal level. We, uh, we're fortunate to have a bipartisan group called the Congressional Climate Caucus. Sadly, the leader and the founder of that, we lost yesterday's election. However, we hope that his, his predecessor will continue um, that leadership because it's bipartisan and it's growing every day. Um, I think we're at 80 members now, and you can't join the Climate Caucus if you don't bring a Democrat with you, if you're a Republican, or if you're a Republican, you bring a Democrat with you. So, so, and they're working on putting a price on, on carbon and the opportunity, the economic opportunities that that brings to entrepreneurship and businesses. Um, there's this misperception out there that that's, that's for some reason that's going to impact people and that it's a tax, but it's really not. It's an incentive more, more than anything. How is Canada working on your own uh, carbon pricing program? Yes, uh, certainly. Uh, our view is that carbon pricing is really one of those business-friendly approaches to addressing climate change because it's a very clear signal. It's a market signal. Uh, the alternatives to carbon pricing really are regulations, which tend to be less business-friendly, uh, and uh, incentives, which of course are expensive. So, so uh, the reality is, though, that to address the significant challenge of climate change, we need all the tools. We need all, all of the, the measures that we can take to address uh, uh, emissions. So Canada's climate change plan combines carbon pricing as a key pillar with regulations in certain sectors, incentives in others, huge investments in, in innovation, uh, as well as in adaptation. So it, it is a key pillar of our plan. and. Uh, I think what's been interesting in Canada is that we've had to knit together provincial systems into a national system because we have a, a long track record of carbon pricing. British Columbia and Quebec have been implementing carbon pricing for over a decade now. So we didn't want to start from zero. So when we put together the pan-Canadian framework on clean growth and climate change, the, the, the arrangement was that uh, provinces that wanted to keep their own systems or implement their own systems would do so and in other provinces that did not, we would implement uh, a carbon pricing measure at the, at the federal level. So that's what we're doing, and as of January 1st, uh, we'll be implementing the, the federal measure in provinces that have not already got the measure in place. And has there been a, a public support around that effort? And, and, and what can we learn here to try to move our agenda forward? You know, uh, it's been a very rich debate in Canada around carbon pricing. Uh, it's been fascinating to watch. 
And, and I think uh, that uh, you know, there's a lot of recognition that this, this is a very effective tool. Uh, there's no question that people don't like to pay more money for something, and, and it's not always easy to explain, uh, especially uh, now that in, in certain provinces we'll be returning the revenues directly to, to uh, uh, taxpayers. Uh, so it's the intention there is to be revenue neutral. So you, know, you have to explain how does that make sense to tax you on the one hand and then give that money back. But it's, um, I think it's becoming clear to people that when something is more expensive, you're going to consume less of it. And if you've got more money in your pocket, it means you could go and consume something else. It's not that you're going to go and continue to spend the same amount on, on that thing, which has become more expensive. And that's, that's the, the, the market mechanism that lies behind uh, carbon pricing. Well, thank you for that. Um, I'm, my last question, then I'm going to open it up to you all because I'm sure there's a lot of questions for the ambassador and we don't want to hold, up, hold you up. You have a busy schedule. Um, let's talk about this new updated trade agreement and how climate issues revolve around it and, and what are some of the, the tenets associated with climate in that agreement? Well, you know, I think the first thing to say is that uh, uh, in Canada, we, we like to say that the economy and the environment go together. So when we come to negotiating trade, trade agreements, uh, we like to make sure that, that environmental protection is integrated into trade agreements. And I think that approach is growing globally. It's now a kind of a standard approach to have environmental chapters in the trade agreements. So we're very pleased that the USMCA has a environmental chapter. It's no longer a side agreement as it was in NAFTA. It is a, a chapter integrated into the agreement. Uh, and uh, it has, uh, I think, a, a number of, of interesting features to it. But one that I would just highlight is, uh, uh, you know, the, the focus around uh, uh, oceans and uh, uh, protection of uh, uh, fisheries. Uh, that's an area where we continue to collaborate with the United States, we, it's a strongly shared interest, and it's one we, we worked on in the G7 context as well, the, the uh, whole effort uh, around healthy oceans. So I think that's, you know, that's a, a, an area where we, we will continue to collaborate closely, and one that's relevant to Florida. <laughs> Very relevant. And it's great to have a friend in Canada, and you're such an amazing role model for, you know, not just climate change, but for women, and so we're very proud to have you here this morning, and I hope that you have a fantastic rest of the day. Well, Dr. Feltmate, welcome to Resilient Forward, and um, let's just get started, and, and I'm very interested in, in, in understanding how you got involved in the climate adaptation field and the work that you've been doing so far, and how we can um, learn from you uh, to implement some of these adaptation solutions here in South Florida. Great. Well, my interest in the whole area of climate change, extreme weather risk began about 10 or 11 years ago when I met with a very famous scientist by the name of James Lovelock, uh, an atmospheric scientist amongst other points of his background. And it was during this period of time that I met with him that he convinced me that climate change was effectively a done deal. It's here to stay. We're not going backwards globally on climate change. Uh, we can work to slow down the rate of climate change, but we can't stop it. So when I looked at Canada 10 or 11 years ago and uh, said, well, what are we doing on the climate file? I could find a lot of people who were focusing on ways to mitigate greenhouse gas emissions, to slow down the, the rate of emissions of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. 
but there was virtually zero work being done on how do we adapt to extreme weather risk that's on the ground today in the forms of floods or fires or hail or windstorms or coastal region impacts. When you looked at the country as a whole, basically nobody was focusing on what can we do practically and cost effectively to take risk out of the system when these big storm events occur. So I decided to uh, develop a program whereby we could focus on prioritizing what are the key climate change challenges facing Canada in terms of extreme risk and then come up with uh, means to alleviate uh, that risk through primarily the creation of codes and standards. Uh, to fund this effort, I went to the industry sector that was getting hit hardest by climate change extreme weather risk, which is the whole area of property and casualty insurance. I met with the CEO of Intact Financial uh, Corporation, which is the largest insurance company in Canada in the, in the property and casualty insurance area. And they agreed to fund this effort. And I ended up setting up a research center at the University of Waterloo to, to develop best practices on uh, extreme weather risk mitigation. That's fantastic. So you 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 basically what we say here: the environment is the economy. You kind of like package that together, and you started working with industry right off the bat, um, explaining, I guess, risks. As you know, here we we have our extreme events are related to flooding, um, and so did you look at some of the flood um, events that you were having in some of those areas? and kind of, um, you, I guess you worked with the insurance industry, but you also worked with the financing arm of, or banking, banking industry as well, right? To kind of finance some solutions? Yeah, absolutely. In other words, I looked at, I looked at and continue to look at climate change uh, adaptation through a business lens, period. And we're, so, so best practices to mitigate risk, this isn't a nice to have, this isn't an exercise in altruism or benevolence. Adaptation properly applied is simply smart business, period. Of course. And we maintain the ability of the economy to function well from, from the perspective of uh, maintaining the integrity and, and insurability of the Canadian housing market to the ability of businesses uh, to remain up and running when extreme weather events occur, uh, helping businesses not realize stranded assets due to a flood or a fire or whatever it might be. So everything we do, or 90% of it at least, comes under the umbrella, the uh, uh, adaptation to climate change is simply good and smart business properly applied. That's great. And of course, uh, you know, like I like to say when, when I speak to groups, it's we either invest now or pay later, <laughs> right? Pay now or pay a lot more later um, because, you know, of, of the rebuilding aspects of everything. And, you know, we've been hit by a few hurricanes the past couple of years that have wreaked havoc. Um, in, in, to our you know communities, residential communities, as well as our businesses. So um, rebuilding when you when you uh, when you look at rebuilding in certain areas that are prone, or I guess they have compounded, you know they they have compounded um, events. Where do you see drawing the line as far as okay, we're going to have to kind of like look at this in a different way and maybe not invest in that area. Um, because there's that, 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 those conversations are happening now, even in, at, our, at our federal level with FEMA and everything else, there are places that they're just not funding to rebuild again. And so those are very difficult um, um, decisions to make, but nonetheless, they're, they're also a business decision, right? Right. So effectively, the decision-making comes down to if you, from the perspective of being practical, cost-effective, uh, if it's feasible to build back in an area, but build back better, 
uh, to practically and cost-effectively put the measures in place that will alleviate future risk or recurrent of that risk having a substantial negative impact, then you can proceed along those lines. However, there are certain areas that when no matter how you slice the equation, it is simply does not make sense financially, socially, or any other way to continue to build in a given area and there uh, you, you have to exit. Which by the way is easy to say, but it's a lot more difficult when you're dealing with people and their lives and they've lived in a certain area for multiple generations. It's very, very difficult for them to leave and I get that. But the, the reality is there are communities now that are shifting simply because the dynamic of the system does not allow for them to stay there any longer. And are there, have there been occurrences of that in, in Canada? I know that the Dutch have been very proactive with regards to those kinds of programs um, for citizens, but how about Canada? Yes, we have, particularly on the edges of running water systems, rivers, streams, creeks that are uh, vulnerable to flooding, mm -hmm. we have about uh, six to eight percent of homes in Canada that are in very high flood risk zones that are absolutely uninsurable, wow. that we're looking at the relocation of people that live in those communities. and. The lessons certain communities are taking now are coming from other communities that have been substantially flooded and devastated and people's lives wiped out as a result of this occurrence. And communities that are in similar circumstances but, but haven't been hit quite so hard yet, but know for sure probably sometime in the next five, 10 years they are going to be, uh, they're either looking at putting substantial measures in place to hopefully hold back the water or simply moving before it happens. But at the end of the day, the operationalization of of adaptation is really premised on the belief that the best way to solve the problem is don't have the problem. So you either get out of the zone where the problem is going to occur or you put the measures in place that make it such that uh, the, the potential for that negative impact is much, much lower. So and let's talk about those measures. So, you know, an area that is prone to flood and has a potential of major sea level rise, but far into the future, but is already experiencing some tidal flooding, and we have some of those neighborhoods here, Miami, Miami Beach. Um, what kind of measures um, have, can, we, can we look at implementing in some of these, for some of these homeowners, and, and um, what kind of financial instruments are there to, because you know, you're a property owner, you want to obviously extend the life of, of your property, and thereby offsetting any property value loss um, and also keep it insurable. So um, are there any banks that you've worked with that have um, financed some of these solutions for some of these per private homeowners? Like, you know, we have home equity loans here, like home improvement loans. Are there, is, are there any instruments that, that you've seen um, used in Canada that might, might be uh, used here? Yeah, there's, there's quite a few instruments. For example, on the mortgage side of the equation now, when you get a mortgage for a home in, in Canada, so this is a, either a detached home, semi-detached, or even a row townhouse uh, type settings, part of the package of information that you're given at the time you get your mortgage is direction on measures you can take on the outside of your property and inside the house itself to lower the probability that you will end up with a flooded basement or, or flooding uh, within your home. And the banks are doing this, by the way, not just to be nice people, they're doing this because they want to maintain the security of that investment, i.e. if your home floods out en masse and for some reason you just can't afford to fix it, the bank could end up holding literally a, a, a mortgage that, that's underwater, exactly. which they don't want. So this is a value add offering that they bring to both the homeowner, uh, that's good for the homeowner and good for themselves. 
from the perspective of the large uh, insurers, the property and casualty insurers, homes that put measures in place that will lower flood risk, uh, they will realize generally in the zone of a 5 to 15% reduction in insurance premium on an annual basis for the total insurance package for the house, not, not just the flood component. Uh, and the insurers will do that because uh, premiums are linked to risk. If you can lower the risk profile of your house, your premium is adjusted accordingly. And this is good for the insurers, it's good for the homeowner, it's good for the municipalities because we want to maintain the insurability of the housing market in Canada, which right now is going in a negative direction. Increasingly so, from one end of the country to the other, people are finding out that their homes are no longer insurable relative to flood damage unless they put certain measures in place. Right, and, and we're talking about retrofits, right? In, Correct. In, in these terms, but when we're talking about new construction, you have obviously looked at your building codes and you know, revise them accordingly, depending on where, you know, a developer decides to build. That's correct? right. So we're, we've developed, not developing, we've actually developed and are in the process of deploying uh, four codes to mitigate flood risk in the country. One code looks at flood risk at the level of the individual house. What do you do around the individual house to lower flood risk? Uh, that's practical, doable, exercisable by almost any handy homeowner. Uh, the next code is for flood resiliency relative to new residential community design. How do you build new residential communities going forward such that they won't all flood out, starting with don't build in a floodplain. Right. The third component is focuses on uh, flood risk mitigation for existing communities. How can you use berms, diversion channels, holding ponds, cisterns, bioswales, permeable surfacing to hold water in safe locations or direct it to safe locations to overall lower flood risk profile for existing communities. And then the fourth standard focuses on flood risk mitigation for commercial real estate, for condo towers, high office towers, et cetera. How do we lower flood risk profile for, for, for those? So there's really a package of four standards and codes developed in Canada to mitigate flood risk and they are developed in concert with the insurance industry, the banking sector, uh, municipal planners, builders, developers, but they have the stamp of approval of the federal agency, the National Research Council and the Standards Council of Canada on them, which lends credibility to these codes because if you just had someone go out and develop a best practice that lowers flood risk, let's say, mm -hmm. that may be perfectly good, but nobody's ever heard of this organization, they don't know as to its credibility, the insurers and the banks can't shave basis points off the cost of a mortgage or lower an insurance premium, taking into account that measure if they've never heard of it. But if you have a national standard associated with it, it has instantaneous credibility and due diligence attached to it that is vitally important. So that's, so that's, this is very interesting. So it's, um, is it a mandate by the federal government um, and that all the, Per, uh, provinces, um, which in our in our turn in, in our country would be states, yeah. uh, would um, I guess uh, adopt right, and then it would trickle down to the municipalities. Would that be some? Is that the way the track that you all took? Because you know we had a major hurricane back in 1992, Hurricane Andrew. I'm sure you're aware of it, and we made some. We be Miami-Dade County made some serious code changes. Um, to the building code. However, and some and many counties, you know, throughout the state did implement some of those, but it was kind of like a volunteer type of, you know, and the state kind of gave, gave a pushback, obviously, because developers and, you know, it costs more money, blah, blah, blah. Um, we saw the effects of Hurricane Michael now mm -hmm. um, in the Panhandle area that did not adopt these building codes. 
um, and changes towards wind and you saw the devastation. So would you say that it would be probably best practices for the federal government to lead on some of these being that they you know they're holding all this debt because of you know flood insurance debt because of all these devastating hurricanes and floods and fires that we've had the past couple of years. Yeah, the short answer is yes, <laughs> and the and basically the way it works and it's almost universal wherever you go in the world is that generally speaking localities it's not enough to be hit once by an extreme weather event because a lot of people will start to argue well that was just a one off we've had our hit we're probably good, but if they get hit with two one in a hundred year storms within let's say a five year period it's amazing how quickly they get religion on this file overall that all of a sudden look we can't ignore this any longer and the bottom line is this on climate change and extreme weather you can only cheat the system i.e. do nothing for so long until it catches up to you well now it's catching up to us so in Canada we what we found the experience is that yeah we develop uh, codes and standards on adaptation at a national level we roll those out to the provinces or the equivalent of your states, and then the adoption of them or deployment of them uh, differs from province to province or the equivalent of state to state. Some provinces adopt them as mandatory that, uh, as with a little bit of a heavy hammer, that the municipalities within the province must adhere to these uh, standards, period, non-negotiable. Whereas in other provinces, they leave it up to the discretion of the municipality as to whether or not they want to enforce these standards or not. So we have a mixed bag of both. So it's kind of flexible, but still, nonetheless, there are these um, you know, provisions in place where folks have to build differently now. Yeah, that's correct. And, but the, again, you know, sort of the religion on the file mm -hmm. is really coming in the area of finance because people are finding out if you own a home that is no longer insurable, you've now, due to extreme weather events that you sure. haven't taken into account, you've now compromised the entire equity of your home. When you go to sell your house, you will sell at a substantial discount. Like So the investment vehicle that is your primary investment vehicle in life for most people and their retirement plan is their house. Sure. If they have not taken care of it to put these measures in place, they will sell at a discount. They will, whoever would buy it will still even have a hard time uh, getting a mortgage on it or they'll pay a higher rate on their mortgage or a higher insurance cost. So there is no cheating this system. Ultimately it catches up. It's just a matter of how quickly. And it, it's no different than if you're sitting in a large building, for example, and, and, and people have to understand that it doesn't cost very much to put the measures in place to lower flood well, risk in most cases. That's another thing. People think that, oh, you know, I have to raise my home. Well, not really. I mean, there's certain things that you can put in place to really extend the, the life of, of that property, you know, just by raising your electricity, your electrical, you know, panels. units and panels and whatnot. Um, and, and your air conditioning here, and you know, obviously here in Miami, we need yeah. that, um, and, and, and so forth. So there are certain things in, in, in implementing floodgates and raising your seawalls and, you know, those kinds of investments, because there is obviously a cost of inaction. And also people have to recognize too, like sometimes people will cavalierly say, well, you know, Miami just has to get out of there. Well, that's not gonna happen. It's no. a physical structure that is not going to move. It's non-negotiable, that's the way it is. So. 
what we have to look at is is enforcement. Like, how do you actually put the measures in place to mitigate flood risk? It's very doable, and relative to the equity you have mm -hmm. invested in the community, it still is a fraction of, right. of, of spending. Well, I see it no different than putting, you know, impact windows on your home to prevent, you know, from wind damage, for example, from a hurricane, or, or you know, putting solar panels to lower your energy costs. So, you know, it's just an investment that you're making to enhance the life, the livability of that of that property. And the uh, and it is an investment, by the way. People should think of it as an investment. It is equity in the mm -hmm. property mm -hmm. uh, that remains and will be realized when you go to sell. And it's the same thing, for example, in large office towers. Uh, historically, when the uh, emphasis was per first placed on putting uh, uh, in place a, a sprinkler system to retard fire, at First, there was a bit of pushback on the cost associated with that. But quite frankly, at the time you're building new, an office tower, to put the little bit of extra piping in, to put the sprinkler system in place to hold back fire, uh, cost a fraction of 1% more for the property at the time of build. But if you build wrong, and then have to retrofit. If you had to come along to a building and then retrofit it to put the sprinkler system in it, you have to tear the whole building apart and almost rebuild it by 50%. It's enormously expensive. So people need to understand that at the time of new build or at the time of a scheduled retrofit, the cost of building right is more or less the same as the cost of building wrong. Right, it makes, it makes sense. I mean, it's common sense actually, if you think about it. Um, I, you know, in your presentation, you kind of uh, alluded to that in your summary. And um, I love this return on investment. A dollar on adaptation equals three to $10 in avoided loss for a 10 year time frame. And um, this is something that you worked on, obviously, with your partners in the um, insurance industry to kind of come up with those numbers. Right. Or, or also, for example, for Canada right now, I chair uh, the creation of a new national code for the transmission and distribution of electricity relative to climate change, extreme weather risk. Mm -hmm. uh, so an adaptation code for the transmission and distribution of electricity. So we've had working on this, and this is for all climate perils, for flood, fire, drought, heat, wind, snow load, permafrost loss, coastal erosion impacts. What do all of those things mean to how we build the electricity transmission system in Canada mm -hmm. going forward? And what we have found is that as a general rule of thumb for towers or equipment or whatever aspects of mechanism it might be for transmission and distribution of electricity, that to, to build adaptation into the system uh, will produce a return on investment of about $1 in will produce somewhere in the Avon, generally speaking for TND, about five and $6 in savings per 10 year period for damage that now doesn't occur. So when you think about it, let's say you were investing in a mutual fund and somebody said to you, you put a dollar in this mutual fund today and you come back in seven years and I'll give you $4 for every dollar you invest it. That's the zone we're in, which by the way, there's no mutual fund in the world. Warren Buffett could not produce <laughs> the square root of that. That's Never true. mind that. That is very so true. So it's, it's an astronomically good return on investment to be proactive. Well, you know, to kind of like we're, you know, closing, closing up, um, what advice would you give our local elected officials and even our state officials um, in Florida to, to really give a, a, a real focus. And we just, we just had a new governor that, that rolled out a whole slew of, of um, positive environmental policies and water policies and creation of the Office of Resilience um, at the state level, which is very, you know, you know, for us in this industry is, 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 is very exciting. Um, what advice would you give leaders um, to, to kind of, we're kind of, I think, always 
a little bit behind when it comes to adaptation solutions. Um, so I would love to hear your perspective and any advice you can give um, to, you know, obviously folks that need to make uh, policies and put policies in place and the time frame that it would take. Well, certainly for the state of Florida, it's, it's, a, it's, it's to uh, send the clear messaging that we recognize climate change, extreme weather risk, it's here, it's here to stay, and we're gonna get more of it going forward. However, we're not asleep at the switch. We are developing programs to operationalize adaptation. And the one thing we need to do is, although we're moving in the right direction, we all collectively recognize that perhaps we're not moving fast enough. And every day we don't adapt is a day we don't have. So the positive news is that, is that uh, we're moving in the right direction. We want to build on positive momentum. And if anything, think of it, preparation for climate change, extreme weather risk, not as a cost, but an investment in equity, in the livability of, of the state of Florida going forward that will work to everybody's collective benefit. That's fantastic. And thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Feltman. It's tr truly an honor to meet you. And I'm so happy that you've been such a leader in these efforts because we need more of you. <laughs> oh, well, you're very generous. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Resilient Forward. You can listen to other podcasts at resilientforward.com and follow us on Twitter at resilientf. WD. If you're interested in sponsoring our show or know someone who we should feature, please contact us. Remember, our environment is our economy.